Welcome to Docs. This is episode number 90 of the Military Health Systems official podcast. It's Thursday, December 17th, 2009. My name is Russell Carlson, and we are smack dab in the middle of Winter Safety Month. So we're going to talk today about staying safe in the cold weather, both at home and in theater. Our guest this week is Dr. John Castellani, research physiologist for the United States Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine. Dr. Castellani, welcome to Dot Mill Docs. Oh, thank you for having me today. Sure. Well, um, I was wondering if you could begin by just talking a little bit about what you do and, and what it does for DOD and the warfighter. Okay. Well, I'm a, a research physiologist uh, at the uh, U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine. Uh, we're located up in Natick, Massachusetts. Is that outside Boston? Uh, that's outside Boston. And um, I work in a group that, whose goal really is to help sustain uh, soldier performance in environmental extremes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, my division, uh, the Thermal and Mountain Medicine Division, uh, looks to improve performance, both physical and cognitive performance, uh, in the heat, cold, and high-altitude environments. Uh, so the kind of work that we do is very relevant to our warfighters who are fighting both in Iraq and Afghanistan. And our job is to help them do their job better in those in those tough environments. Sure, and it does get quite cold in Afghanistan, doesn't it? Uh, it does. Um, you know, certainly it gets colder as one goes higher in the mountains, um, and then in the in the winter, of course, it, you know, just because of the of the time of the year, uh, you know, you can see temperatures uh, certainly dipping uh, in in the high altitude areas, certainly below zero. Uh, and even even in the in the lower valleys in the north, you can see temperatures below freezing uh, for much of the winter. And so, what are say the most common types of cold injuries? Well, we like to think of cold injuries really as uh, as three different uh, three different things. Uh, the first one is, is hypothermia, uh, which essentially is just a lowering of your core body temperature. Um, and so it's a generalized cold response that, you know, and it can be caused by many different factors. Most of the time, though, it's caused by a cold, wet environment. Right. Um, so that would be the first type of cold injury that we typically see a lot of. Uh, and then we like to group the other two into what we would call local cold injuries, uh, the first of those being frostbite, which most people are familiar with, and that, that is literally a freezing of, of, of tissue mm-hmm. uh, in any part of your body. Uh, so the tissue temperature actually gets below 32 degrees, Actually, the temp- tissue temperature actually has to get below about 27 degrees um, to start seeing freezing of the tissue. So that's what frostbite is. That's when, when your tissue literally freezes. That is correct. Uh, frost nip, people are familiar with frost nip, uh, is, is really what you might consider the very, very beginning of frostbite. So, you, you know, if you saw, looked at someone's nose or their finger, you might see a really tiny white dot, uh, and that would be the very beginning of frostbite. Um, and it actually is one of the signs that you can start looking for to, to have someone take, uh, take some other measures, either get out of that environment or do some other preventative steps so it doesn't get any worse. What, what would frostbite look like? Uh, it, usually it's, it, it starts off sort of white, um, and uh, it's usually the first response, and then it may turn a little bit blue, and it sort of has a waxy appearance, uh, and, and the skin gets a little bit... Uh, you know, to the touch, the the skin in that area starts to get hard. Um, so that's that's usually the beginning that we ask people, soldiers and other folks, to start looking for those kinds of, of uh, signs and symptoms of mm-hmm. someone. You know, folks are going to start to feel numb beforehand. Um, 
you know, usually once you get start getting the frostbite, of course, you know, the tissue starting to, to go, so you're not going to feel it as much. But it's, it's, it's those signs beforehand, too, actually, the frostbite, so that numbing, uh, very painful before the tissue actually starts to freeze. And then you'll, again, see that waxy appearance start to begin after that. What would you want to do if you, if you say you knew you had frostbite or somebody else had it? Well, the, the biggest thing is, is obviously to get out of that environment to, uh, uh, to try to rewarm that tissue. Um, the, the most important thing about someone with frostbite is, and is really important for soldiers, especially when they're out in the field, uh, is that you, you want to be able to warm it um, without a large heat um, Load, for example, oh, yeah. in, in the past, some people have, like, for example, you know, tried to warm up hands and fingers, for example, over over an engine or with exhaust or or with other very high heat sources like a fire. Mm-hmm. We actually want to try to rewarm it very slowly, um, and so that's important. But but the most important thing that we we tell our soldiers out in the field is that. If you're going to rewarm someone with frostbite, you want to make sure that it doesn't refreeze again. Mm. Uh, you're better off to allow tissue to remain frozen uh, and get back to an area where you know you will have very little risk of it of it uh, refreezing again as you start to rewarm it, because you actually see a lot worse damage to tissue uh, when you go through sort of these freeze thaw freeze cycles. Um, so it is. It's really important that once you begin to rewarm, you need to try to make sure that that, that tissue remains uh, not frozen uh, at that point. Uh, but again, as I said, you know, it's better off to keep it frozen uh, sure. until you get back to a place where you're comfortable. Where it can get gradually warmer. Uh, that's correct. I mean, we, we typically we tell people that when they're rewarming from a from a from some kind of cold injury. Uh, to keep the water, like for example, you could immerse if your finger was was frostbitten, you know, to maybe immerse it in water that's around it's tepid, somewhere around 102, 104 degrees Fahrenheit, but no higher than that. Just not not scalding hot water. That, that's correct. So it'd be really like sort of warm water, tepid water that you'd get out, say for example, out of a, out of a spigot. So uh, um, I mean, I know a lot of people don't have access to a thermometer and things like that, but that right. would be the idea. It's just sort of the idea of, like, tepid, warm water. You know, water that t- actually, if people are very familiar in the kitchen, is that water that you would want to um, start yeast with. Uh, sure. If you're going to bake bread, that's the temperature that you typically want to put, put someone's, someone's extremity in to start uh, to rewarm. Are there any cold injuries that we haven't covered? Uh, there's one other that, that we see, and uh, it's actually, again, it's local, but it's not freezing. It's actually called non-freezing cold injury. Uh, the, the, another popular name for that is also known as trench foot uh, because it was mostly, it was seen really to the first great extent during the First World War uh, when soldiers in Europe were standing around in trenches for long periods of time, um, and those trenches filled with water. Um, and so what happens is that the water wasn't frozen, of course, and but but there was very cold. It was, um, you know, probably somewhere between 40 and 55 degrees, and and very long-term exposure to an environment like that can can cause tissue damage. Um, you know, more recently we haven't, you know, the mo- the most recent time we've seen non-freezing cold injuries actually were in the British uh, and the Argentinian armies during the Falkland Islands War in 1982. Mm. Uh, because again, the 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 environment was is the soldiers were were fighting essentially in bogs, um, and and were in these bogs for long periods of time. Uh, 
So Those the, types of injuries take a long time to exacerbate or come about. You know, usually involves very long periods of exposure, 8, 10, 12, 24 hours oh. of being continually exposed to that. So they're getting wet and it's it's not warm, it's kind of maybe cold and just that amount of time of being, say, wet That's and right. cold. Um, and, you know, we see those kinds of injuries in other areas, actually maybe not when you're, say, in a bog or in a trench, but we also see it in soldiers, for example, who might be wearing boots that don't allow much in the way of, of sweat to evaporate uh, out of the uh, out of the boot, like vapor vapor compression boots, so, you know, soldiers in very cold environments like Alaska are, are issued those. And that's why it's important to keep boots dry, uh, because if you were wearing your boots for really long periods of time, your feet are still getting so, a little bit cold, and then you had a very, you know, and it was wet inside there. Um, we start, to, we see a little bit of non-freezing cold injuries from that kind of, of, of exposure, or even in the hands and gloves. If people are wearing gloves, again, that are wet for really long periods of time, um, you know, that's where you might start to see some of those kinds of injuries as well. Sure. Now, what? Okay, we hear on the news all the time about wind chill and wind chill factors. What? What is that? Well, wind chill. Uh, what it What it tells us is is basically the cooling power of the environment, and and what it does is it it references it back to. Uh, uh, what you would think about what it would be like if, if the temperature was a certain at a certain point, but there was no wind. Mm -hmm. uh, so to give an to give an example, um, if the air temperature uh, and I actually I'm actually going to find you a real number here. Okay. So uh, you know, say the air temperature outside was 10 degrees Fahrenheit, okay. but there was no wind, then the wind chill factor would be uh, about 10. Mm -hmm. uh, but you could have that same what we call the cooling environment from that same combination of a combination of the air temperature and then also the wind speed of 10. If you were to have, say, someone who was in a 25 degree Fahrenheit environment, but the wind was uh, was uh, blowing at around 20 miles per hour, right, or 25 miles per hour, um, that would sort of give you what you'd call an equivalent temperature to what it would be like if you were standing in 10 degree air, but there was no wind. Right, and we've uh, all experienced that. Yeah, we've all experienced it. Um, you know, for you know, what what's what's sort of new? What's come out in the last five to eight years is that uh, work has come out to kind of show what really the risk of of getting a frostbite injury is uh, related to to the wind chill. Oh, really? Um, uh, so, as an example, uh, typically, and, and again, this actually surprises many people, is that. You can get down to fairly low wind chill temperatures before you start to see an increased risk mm -hmm. of a cold injury um, or a frostbite injury. That's not to say you can't get frostbite below 32. Actually, you need to probably get below about 27 to start to see some kind of injury because that's mm -hmm. about where the temp tissue starts to freeze. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's like seawater. Uh, but w what it is is that, yeah, you could have injuries at those what I'd call warmer temperatures, but that's very rare. But you need a combination of a wind chill of around below around minus 15 degrees Fahrenheit before you start to see much more significant increase risk of of a, of, a, of, of frostbite, for example. Um, wind chill only sh kind of has its effects on um, skin that's exposed. Right. So uh, again, if your hands may get very cold, but in terms of the wind chill effect, it won't be there if you're wearing gloves. Um, most wind chill a lot of times will have effects on face, for example, because that's that's an area that's typically not fully covered. Well, uh, the, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say. So 
you know, and that 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 hat plays a role as well. Um, the windshield uh, was really um, designed for, say, someone who's standing on a bus stop, you know, waiting, maybe gently walking back and forth, mm-hmm. uh, having the wind blown on them. Um, so we actually have. So that's really what it's designed for. Uh, for soldiers, we we talk about things that they they want to add to that. We don't know, for example, if the sun was out. Uh, because the windshield is not designed with sun, with a solar load. So if the sun's out, you may actually have a, maybe a little lesser uh, of a, a chance of getting a cold injury uh, because of the solar uh, radiation that's coming down. Uh, also, when you're exercising, you start to increase your body heat and you actually increase blood out to the periphery a lot more. So that may also decrease your risk of getting frostbite, um, even though the windshield hasn't changed. Um, so those are sort of very important things uh, that people need to know about about the windshield. The other thing people don't tend to think about when they, and soldiers especially, when they're talking about windshield is actually creating their own wind. So if soldiers are in a cold environment and say they're doing, you know, like the 10th Mountain Division may be doing skiing exercises or up in Alaska, mm-hmm. you know, those folks are actually creating their own wind if they were skiing. Sure. Um, you know, down, down the rotor uh, wind, rotor draft not sure what you call it, right. uh, from a helicopter, uh, you know, also creates wind. It's artificial. Um, so those kinds of things also need to be taken into account, like sort of just a local thing that's going on. So you could get the weather report and say, well, we don't have a risk of, of, of the wind chill here, but maybe you would if you had some other wind sources that you weren't thinking about. Yeah, if you're some kind of extenuating circumstances. Uh, so that's where it's really useful today. Uh, to look at the look at our wind chill chart, and, and actually for for soldiers out there, one of the best places they can go to get some of this kind of information is is that our institute uh, has put out. It's the Army Doctrine for the Prevention and Treatment of Cold uh, Weather Injuries. It's called TB Med 508. Okay. Uh, and is located at our Usarium website, so they can go there and actually, you know, you can get the wind chill charts, uh, and it'll tell you uh, sort of wh- whether you're in a green, yellow, or red zone in terms of the risk. We also have in that particular document uh, the generalized uh, amount of time it would take if you had exposed skin in that environment, how long it would take till you would get frostbite. Oh, and what, what is that website? If you uh, know so the our website is uh, www.usarium.army.mil. Okay, that's U-S-A-R-I-E-M. Uh, it's uh, U-S-A, yes, U-S-A-R-I-E-M. <laughs> okay. With that, we are going to take a quick break for the Mill Docs Health Beat, news and information from the military health system. When we come back, we'll talk more about cold weather safety with Dr. Castellani. Mill Docs Health Beat. The DOD's Millennium Cohort Study, which explores the long-term health effects of military service, including deployments, will expand its scope to military families starting in June. Nearly 150,000 service members are already participants in the 21-year study, which began in 2001. But the study has, until now, overlooked family members. In June, the study will enroll a new panel of roughly 62,500 service members, about half of whom will be married, and researchers anticipate that about 65% will give permission to contact their spouses. Researchers hope to have a sample of about 10,000 spouses total, and their feedback will go a long way toward fulfilling existing gaps in information. The Defense Vision Center of Excellence is scheduled to move into 4,000 square feet of space in the new Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland in 2011. The new location will include office space as well as an outreach and information center that will be open and available to everyone. Co-located with other optometry and ophthalmology offices, the Vision Center of Excellence will be part of a veritable eye center at the new Walter Reed. 
The Vision Center of Excellence currently operates from offices near the Pentagon in Roslyn, Virginia, and was established in 2008 to improve care for service members with visual disorders or visual disturbances, including traumatic brain injury. Finally, how do you keep pain at bay while suffering a battlefield injury? Army Colonel Chester Buckenmeyer III thinks he has the answer. Working as a regional anesthesiologist on the battlefield, Buckenmeyer successfully kept a patient who had sustained a severe shrapnel injury pain-free for 16 days. That included an international evacuation process, five surgeries, and an amputation. His success led him to explore other uses for regional anesthesia, and he believes he holds the key to a new era of pain management. All these stories and more are available at health.mil. Log on to stay up to date. This has been your .mil Docs Health Beat. For the Military Health System, I'm Elizabeth Lockwood. Welcome back to .mil Docs. We're going to pick it back up with Dr. John Castellani of the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine. Okay, so we're talking about, you know, all, this, all these cold injuries that you can get, but... I would imagine the first way that you can protect yourself is how do you how do you dress? That that's correct. I mean that's the biggest preventative measure that most people can take, um, and it and it really is quite simple, and it really hasn't changed much from what mom told us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really is is, is to dress in layers. Um, honestly, clothing you know itself, the biggest thing that it does to keep us warm is that it provides. Uh, insulation from trapped air layers. Mm-hmm. So all that expensive clothing that we buy, which does help us, and it all it, it's better than other things, but really what it's doing, it's trapping air. And it's the air that's providing the insulation against heat loss. Um, but there's, there are some basic ideas that people should follow when they are dressing for the cold. Um, so besides dressing in layers, uh, you can talk about the kinds of layers that you typically would want to wear. So the first layer you put on against your skin would be what we call the base layer. Um, and that base layer should have, uh, it should allow better sweat evaporation or allow moisture to move from your skin mm-hmm. uh, through the clothing and then into the next sets of layers or out to the air. Are there certain fabrics that are better for that? Uh, there are. Kind of, kind of like polypropylene uh Synthetics uh-huh. uh, are, are, are good. Uh, silk is also a good, a natural uh, good base layer. Mm-hmm. Um, we tell people that the biggest thing that they don't want to wear uh, as a base layer is cotton. Okay. Because cotton tends to hold water, so it's not going to allow the water to, to uh, go through. And there's sort of an old adage that we like to think about that cotton kills. Right. Uh, we want to make sure that that base layer, yeah, allows for uh, evaporation and allows for sweat to move through it. So, yeah, po- polypropylene and capilene is another kind of a uh, product that's out there, and uh, those are the those are the kinds uh, of of base layers that folks should wear. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new Army combat uniform, at least the shirt, is now made of a synthetic mm-hmm. that allows for better wicking of moisture through it. Um, and then the Army's extended cold weather clothing system, which is designed for very extreme cold weather also, their base layer are all synthetics. Um, so that's an issued item for very extreme cold environments. Uh, okay, so that's, so the, that's the base layer. And then sure. your mid-layer basically provides your insulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck for keeping your heat in. Uh, you know, again, we're looking at um, products like uh, fleece, uh, you know, the Army product uses like a Polar Tech fleece in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, so that, that is a very good uh, insulative layer. Uh, for a natural product, wool is a wonderful uh, insulative layer. And um, little differences between them, fleece will allow for more sweat to get out of it, where wool may hold the heat in, uh, hold the water in a lot more. But it will still re- remain, you know, um, 
it, it'll retain its insulation uh, with uh, uh, with when it gets wet. So that's one of the, the benefits of wool in that regard. It can get very heavy, though, of course, if you're sweating a lot, but sure. it will still retain its insulative value. Okay. Um, so that's that's the mid-layer or the insulative layer. And then the top layer, um, you know, usually is, is a windproofing, uh, waterproofing type of fabric. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a nylon, um, you know, you know, commercial product that, again is used in in the army products is Gore-Tex. Um, those are the types of things that are windproof and waterproof, um, and that's what your top layer would be. And then, depending on what you do, is how what you you know what you're doing is how you mix and match those um, layers. I mean, right. You could have more layers if it's colder. You know, less layers if it's not. Um, the army's uh, Generation Three extended cold weather clothing system actually has seven different. Uh, pieces to it. Oh. So it allows for one to mix and match depending on what they're doing and what the environment is. Um, you know, and one of the things we really try to get across to soldiers and especially to the leadership of the soldiers is that everybody's different. Right. And one of the biggest things we don't want to see in the cold is, is a lot of sweating if it's possible. Because again, you're going to start making the clothes wet. Right. And when just... you make it wet, it loses its insulative ability, and you lose more heat, and you can start to think of the problems that would start to, to occur because of that. Yeah. So we try to get across to the leadership a lot that each soldier is different. So allow allow them, educate them on how they should wear the clothing, and then allow them to make their choices. You know, one guy may have four layers on, and another guy may have two. Right. Depending on what they're doing. So it's really important to. To, to get that point across, uh, that it really is an individual response, and people should be given that opportunity to make individual choices as long as they have the right education and, and the right equipment available. Right. Um, now, how about uh, eating and, and drinking in the cold? Are there any specific foods to yeah. eat or stay away from? Uh, no, and that's one of the things that we try to get across to people is is that, you know, in most cases the cold is not going to add a lot, is not going to change your typical requirements for both food and fluid. <laughs> but like any other activity, they you know, they're, they're, it depends on what you're doing. Um, and some things that may, for example, increase the amount of calories you might need, for example, in a cold, is just the fact that, you know, if you were to wear a lot of cold weather clothing, you could add another 20 pounds to what you're wearing. Right. So that adds the amount of work, you know, the amount of work you have to do gets higher, and so you're going to burn more calories just to do that work. Mm-hmm. If you're walking in snow, um, you know, you're, it's, it, it's harder to walk in snow than it is on pavement. So there's a, there's a greater uh, amount of energy you're using. You'll need more calories. Mm-hmm. So depending on what people are doing, and, again, it's, this is probably more relevant to being out in the field than sort of in garrison if you were doing PT. Right. Um, it, mo- we would say that in most cases you could just maintain what you're normally doing uh, in terms of your food. Uh, if you're out, if you're out in the field for for quite a while, and you are dressed a lot and carrying a lot of heavy equipment, and you know walking in in snow a lot, then you could probably increase your energy uh, intake. Maybe between again, it depends about ten to forty percent more. Um, so, say someone who's burning you know around three thousand calories a day, you know it may go up to you know thirty three hundred calories to say thirty six hundred calories a day might be what they're burning now. So they may have to to take that in. Um, but what we try to get across is that if you have adequate food supplies, we don't tell people to, to eat more at different meals, but maybe just have their regular three-a-day meal and then maybe snack in between. Yeah. And, and the types of foods that you need to eat really aren't any different than you would normally for any other kind of exercise. Um, 
that you're doing. You know, you don't need to, for a long time we thought, you know, you would want to eat more fat. But, you know, we've proven over the years, ever since World War II, uh, that you don't need, you know, extra fat, for example. It doesn't help you. Uh, and in fact, you may end up burning a little bit more carbohydrates just because of the type of work you're doing. Right. So you might need to take in more kinds of carbohydrates. You know, what we typically see with any other kind of athletic person and someone who's very active. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the, the, the rule of thumb there. With, with fluid, uh, again, um, people might think, well, I don't need as much fluid. But, again, if you're working hard and you're wearing enough clothing, you can sweat a fair amount. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you may actually not sense it as much because it's evaporating very quickly because the air is typically dry in the, in the cold and it evaporates from your skin very easily, so you don't sense it very well. Right. Um, you may actually lose a little bit more fluid, too, if the air is very dry just through your breathing. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, uh, you know, but the, again, it depends on your activity levels. Your your water intakes could probably be about what you'd see, you know, more or less during a typical day. Uh, that you know that kind of activity. Now you can't compare it to being a very hot environment where you might really need to increase your water intake. Uh, but it's just your sort of normal, uh, you know. Again, if you're out in the field and and you're you know working hard enough, you know, you're probably looking at maybe about a quarter an hour uh, would would be a generic, you know, a general kind of a of a. Uh, amount of fluid that you should take in. Right. So stay hydrated. Yeah, stay hydrated. You know, we always tell 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 our soldiers that you know if you're out in the field, especially, is is keep an eye on your on the color of your urine. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it gets, starts to get very yellow, uh, then um, then that's a time to start trying to increase how much water you're taking in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, studies we've done here at the institute have shown that actually, if you're dehydrated a little bit, it doesn't seem to increase your risk of cold injury. It certainly doesn't. It doesn't affect your your ability to, with like, for example, shivering and constriction on the on the periphery is a one way you try to shut. You try to increase heat production or shut down how much heat you lose. Dehydration doesn't seem to affect that. Huh. And one of the responses that's good for the cold is that in the in the periphery, like your earlobes, your fingers, your toes, uh, and your nose, is that you see this sort of increase and decrease in blood flow to those uh, different regions on your periphery. So. Um, what happens if a person's hands out in the cold and it's starting to get cold? What will happen is, is that um, it'll actually it'll get start getting cold, 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 and all of a sudden you'll see an increase in the skin temperature, mm. and it'll go through these cycles. And we've looked at that response because it's it's very much related to uh, to risk of frostbite. We've shown that that being dehydrated by as much as four percent doesn't seem to affect that response. Really? Uh, so it doesn't really seem to increase the risk of cold injury. Where you'd probably start seeing problems is just in performance, just like you would in any environment. You know, right. if you had to work hard and, and get going, um, if you're dehydrated, you just can't sustain that work performance very well. Sure. Well, um, now, are there any other risks of being in the cold or anything else uh, that you uh, want to bring up, talk about? Yeah, there's there's quite a few, actually, for soldiers that, that, that are... Um, that are, seem not, not that we don't typically see in maybe in other uh, in other folks, uh, sure. the general public. Like for, for example, carbon monoxide poisoning. Hmm. Um, a couple of things that fo- you know, folks do, and then soldiers will do this. Is one of the things is that you know they'll get in a car, you know, or or you know a Humvee, and then you know they'll turn it on, but it, they're in an area that's not very well ventilated. Um, and that carbon monoxide can build up in, in some of those spaces. Sure, because they're trying to heat up the, the automobile. That's right. And the other thing is, and, and this has changed a lot because we have much better uh, cold weather gear for our tents and things, but, you know, old stoves, 
would, would emit a lot of carbon monoxide as well. Mm. Uh, but, but the newer stoves that actually have been developed here uh, on the Natick Post uh, are much better and don't have that exhaust. But you need to still make sure that you, you, know, you properly set up your tent, you know, you get the exhaust is leaving your tent area, yeah. uh, but that's one of the things that, that soldiers uh, are susceptible to uh, is carbon monoxide poisoning um, just because they're trying to stay warm. Um, another thing that people don't tend to think about a little bit is sunburn. Uh, you know, you can get a sunburn even when the, when the UV, you know, index is pretty low. Yeah, usually you see skiers with, uh, you know, sunburned yeah, faces. Exactly. And um, so actually wearing, uh, wearing sunscreen is still very important in a cold environment um, because you get, besides getting direct sun, you also get reflected sun off the off snow. Right. Uh, so you, you get an increase in that uh, as well. And, you know, another thing that goes in line with that uh, is snow blindness. So we also want our soldiers to wear sunglasses uh, in those in those environments where there's a lot of snow and the sun's out, um, because that's also a potential problem. And what well. is snow blindness uh, exactly? Well, snow, snow blindness. Uh, it's really it's sort of it's a sort of a sunburn of the eyes. Um, so what happens is you might people sort of get a gritty feeling in their eyes and get a little like blurred vision. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, you know, again, the easily pre- you know preventable by just wearing uh, eyewear or goggles. Right. Um, you know, we also to talk about people maybe also trying to wear sunglasses that are, are more of a of a wraparound kind. You know, mm-hmm. some you might see like with with road cyclists. You know, it just keeps out you know anything coming in from the side as well. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the things that we might see. Um, some other things that we also might see with the cold is is that it you know for some people it actually makes their breathing a little worse uh you know there's something called cold weather uh or exercise induced asthma mm. uh so by bringing in cold air um and also just having cold skin actually makes folks um it, it, it actually can precipitate what we call, again we call cold induced or or sometimes exercise induced asthma um, so you might not be susceptible for it in a normal environment, but the cold will bring it out. But this could happen to anybody who's, who doesn't regularly have asthma? That, that, that is correct. Um, so, um, you know, people who are more allergy-prone may be more susceptible to getting it during, you know, during heavy work in a cold air. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, some people, I'll give you an example. I, I'm one of those that has a little bit of exercise or cold-induced asthma in the wintertime that okay. I don't have in the summertime. Um, and, again, it's probably a combination of the dry air uh, in combination with just actually a reflex on your face. The cold air makes the face colder, and it actually causes some constriction in, your, in, uh, in the airways in your lung. And so, again, I would imagine that what you want to do is get into a warmer environment, not shock yourself warm. But... Yeah, or, or, yeah, that's correct. Or, you know, there's some other, there's some other products that, that you could potentially use. I mean, it depends on how worse it is, mm-hmm. you know, how bad it is. Uh, there's products that are that humidify air as it comes in, right. uh, and they have their like their little heat exchangers right at the, right at the mouth. So you breathe through these devices, um, and so they help. Basically, what happens as you breathe out, it humidifies this area. So as you breathe the cold, dry air in, it helps humidify that air a little bit more. So that's been shown to work a little bit. Um, you know, actually covering the face and, and covering other parts of the skin uh, has an effect. Um, so it's, you know, it. You know, there are some things that you could do. It's, it's just working. You know, we tell soldiers, you know, one of the things when you go to a cold environment is you kind of got to work in it and see how it goes and then start making adjustments based on that. Sure. Um, 
Most people, you know, on the whole, most soldiers who might have a little bit of this, you know, can still work, but they just need to be very aware of it. Uh, or if they start to get like a dry cough afterwards that lasts for a long time, um, that, um, you know, that, that's something that, that, that they need to become aware of mm-hmm. uh, and then and deal with that. Um, you know, some of the things that we might see that don't seem inherent, but in a cold environment, of course, as I mentioned earlier, you know, as you go up in altitude, it gets colder, uh, but then so you start running the risk of something else like a, uh, altitude sickness or acute the, mountain sickness. The air gets thinner. Yeah, well, yeah, so you start ending off a little less oxygen in your blood, uh, and that and that makes uh, folks basically have trouble up there. Um, uh, so you start to feel nauseous and sick to your stomach and get a headache, uh, and things that would affect your performance. Uh, so that's certainly uh, something that's very important as well. Um, something that's not as sort of important for soldiers, but maybe even important for family members or, or even those who maybe have some other chronic diseases, um, is that we know that actually the cold may make uh, people have um, angina more. Really? Uh, because, again, what happens is the cold, one of the cold responses that we typically see is, is that you try to clamp down um, the amount of blood that's going to your skin to try mm-hmm. to keep the heat in. And when it does that, your blood pressure goes up. And blood pressure is one of those things that could precipitate an angina attack in someone who's susceptible to that. Um, you know, again, we start, you know, again in the winter when you see people out shoveling and they're doing exercise, haven't done much work, and they're also doing kind of work where, like, for example, you're lifting snow and it's heavy. Right. And you're doing, a, you know, sort of what we call isometric work. Or you're, you're static. You're not moving the muscle, but you've got to move that load of, you know, of heavy snow. That actually causes your blood pressure to go up. You put that in a combination with a cold environment, and it leads to a sort of a, uh, a mix of things that can that can precipitate heart attacks and things like that. So uh, um, that's something that's not again not maybe as important for a young soldier, but again for family members and you know and for soldiers who are starting to you know get up there in age. So sure. So we, the lesson is you know hire the neighborhood kid to shovel your driveway. That's right. Um, <laughs> so it's uh, you know that's that's certainly important. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that that sits out here um you know really those are the 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 major ones there are there is one thing uh that's very rare it's not not seen in a lot of people but some people are actually uh allergic to cold really uh so it's called cold urticaria <laughs> uh so what will happen is is that you'll actually start to get like redness and itching and swelling in the skin you know so some people are who who are susceptible to this for example if you took an ice cube and put it on their forearm after you took the ice cube off, you'd see it almost like an allergic reaction, like a rash. Exactly. So, um, yeah, it's it's something that uh, again, most people would probably be very familiar if they, if that happens to them already. Yeah, that's certainly um, interesting. Uh, but for, for some people who are really susceptible, of course, you know, if you end up with like that kind of a response in your in your airways and things like that, but if you were to breathe in very cold air very quickly, you know, if you had to start having an allergic reaction in those places, it could start to be. Um, more problematic for them. Uh, most people would know that already, though. Right. Well, Dr. Castellani, I want to thank you for coming on the program this week. I think you've really uh, told us a lot about how to stay safe in the cold, and I learned a lot. All right. Well, you're welcome. Well, thank you very much. Have a good day. 
And that does it for us this week on Dot Mill Docs. Again, the web address that Dr. Castellani gave us for the Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine is www.usariem.army.mil. That's U-S-A-R-I-E-M as in Mike. Also, please do visit www.health.mil slash safety for more links to winter safety resources across the military health system and beyond. Next Thursday, Docs returns with guest Ron Horn. He is the deputy director for the Transition Assistance Program, which provides helpful services to wounded warriors in an effort to prepare service members and their families for successful transitions to civilian life. We'll hear all about what they do and how they do it next week. Until then, see you on health.mil. This program is a product of the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, Military Health System. .mil Docs features the most relevant military health topics important to you and your family. If you have questions or topics you'd like to see on an upcoming episode, send us an email at .mildocs at tma.osd.mil. That's D-O-T-M-I-L-D-O-C-S at tma.osd.mil. Visit health.mil for more episodes.